This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Happy birthday to you. Hey, where's mom going? She hasn't even opened her presents. Well, son, she just turned 65, which means there's new offers for her at Specsavers. What? Yep, an eye exam now costs her nothing, and she can get 30% off lens upgrades with any pair of glasses. Wow. So, can we cut the cake now? You betcha. No-cost eye exams are for eligible seniors at all participating locations with costs covered by provincial health care. Conditions apply. See specsavers.ca. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Victor Vigiani from Zealand Communications, Stu Bundy from MUFON Canada, and Chris Stiles, independent UFO researcher, uh, best known for his work on the Shag Harbor UFO incident, all standing by, all here, for the full two hours. And of course, yes, we'll talk Shag Harbor. What a year 1967 was for UFO sightings in Canada. We'll talk about that as well. Have you got your Falcon uh, Lake commemorative coin yet? Well, if not, maybe too late. They're sold out. We'll talk about that as well. Why on earth would the Royal Mint be doing that, I wonder? Uh, Could be part of this whole disclosure movement, perhaps, we'll discuss. Uh, Let me uh, also remind you that uh, the three aforementioned gentlemen will all be part of the Alien Cosmic Expo, as will I, happening June 22, 23, 24. We'll give you more details on that, but it is happening Uh, as I say, in June at the Toronto Airport Marriott Hotel. Go to aliencosmicexpo.com for for further details and to purchase tickets, or you can go to the live events page at strangeplanet.ca. Right now, let me introduce the boys in the band. He is back from Lost Wages, Nevada, where he and his band played in a rockabilly festival alongside the great Jerry Lee Lewis. He's on the Flying V Gibson guitar tonight, Ian Robertson. Welcome back. Good to be back. Just a, a few words, if you would, on, on the, uh, the Rockabilly Festival. We're so proud of you. <laughs> uh, nonstop bopping all night until 7 a.m. Right. And, uh, <laughs> and did, did, did the killer pull a knife on anyone? Or? Not that I know of. No? But, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's getting a little long in the tooth for that, I suppose. Yeah. He's still feisty, though, I'm betting. Yeah, his, his right hand is crazy on the keys. 
I know you showed me a little bit of that video. Yeah. He can still play. The voice is getting a little frail, but he can still, yeah, he can he still lets rock his, it. He lets his fingers do the talking. Yeah. Well, welcome back. We're proud of you, and uh, I know you'll share some more stories with us a little bit later. Uh, here in studio on the Rickenbacker bass guitar and occasionally the theremin, story producer Albert Vinzel, and on the Hammond B3 live stream producer Ryan White. Gentlemen, thank you all. Okay, let's uh, get into it, shall we? Shall we? Victor is uh, no stranger to this program, of course. The executive of uh, executive director of Zeland Communications and the uh, and Zeland News Network. He's a retired educator. He has a bachelor of arts degree in sociology and psychology from York University, and a master's in educational admin and curriculum development from Brock. His research and analysis of anomalous aerial phenomena spans about forty years. His experience involves UFO sightings, report investigation, counseling work with individuals, reporting anomalous experiences, presentations, and journalism in the field of ETI disclosure issues. Victor, welcome once again, my friend. Absolutely great to be with you and with the band. And I should point out, you've got a guitar player, you've got a bass player, you've got a B3, and I'm a drummer. So you, That's you're, right. you're all set. Let's take this on the road. Of course. <laughs> I'll count it in. I'll bring my air guitar. Uh, Stu Bundy is the Assistant National Director of MUFON Canada, a former CTV reporter turned ufologist. He's crossed over to the dark side. Stu has reached or researched uh, at ancient sites from Stonehenge to modern enigmas like Area 51 uh, the last several years, and he's uh, here to tell us all about the Alien Cosmic Expo. Oh, we're still waiting on Stu. That's okay. Let's get to Chris Stiles, independent UFO researcher, best known for his work on the Shag Harbor incident and other classic UFO cases in Atlanta. Canada. He's the co-author of Dark Object with Don Ledger and Impact to Contact with Graham Sims. Chris has appeared and contributed to several feature UFO documentaries in the U.S., Canada, and the U.K. He holds a blended view of the UFO phenomena where physical reality merges seamlessly with a powerful psychic component. Chris Stiles, welcome to Conspiracy, The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm fine, and it's a pleasure to be here. Likewise. All right. And do we have, oh, we're still working on Stu. That's all right. We'll get him. Uh, gentlemen, let's, um, let's talk a little bit about the Alien Cosmic Expo. Victor, while well, we're, we're getting Stu on board here, um, I mean, I, I know it doesn't have a theme specifically, but obviously UFO disclosure is going to be front and center. Yeah, it's, it's going to be probably one of the dominant features uh, as to... I think why uh, Stu and, and uh, all of the people at the MUFON organization here in Canada have uh, have taken this event and and attempting to bring the event into the forefront with a, a clear view of looking at disclosure. And that's the, 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 the thrust of everything. And I know there are so many different aspects to what disclosure can be sort of uh, perceived as, but with the, the guests that we have, you know, uh, Linda Moulton Howe and Richard Dolan and Stanton Friedman and Grant Cameron, um, as a matter of fact, three of the ones that I just mentioned on there were on the most recent, recent Ancient Aliens uh, episode. We will get uh, to we'll that. We'll get yes. to that later. In any case, um, what the thrust will be, we'll be looking at why disclosure has been hidden under sort of a big cake lid for so long. And now with the recent, um, I guess, admission by the United States government, the Pentagon, that they spent $22 million uh, on, a, on a UFO investigation program. A-tip. 
That's we'll talk right. about that. Yep. It, it, that has to be part of the scenario as to how um, we up here in Canada will present the information, not only about the, the Pentagon program, but how the Canadian government fits into that. The Canadian government, the piece of that pie or the piece of that puzzle fits beautifully into the um, in, into the Pentagon issue. So we're going to try to knit all those things together and try to come up with an idea as to how uh, Canada fits into the whole disclosure puzzle. All right, let me get uh, Stu Bundy in here. He's with us uh, for the first hour. Again, Assistant National Director of MUFON, former CTV reporter turned ufologist, and uh, we're happy to have Stu aboard as well. Hey, Stu, welcome. Hey, guys. Uh, thanks for having me on. My pleasure. We were just uh, we were just talking about the um, the disclosure roundtable that's happening. Give us the details uh, again. The Alien Cosmic Expo, uh, the dates again. I know it's at the uh, the Toronto Airport Marriott Hotel, but just give people uh, some details: where to get tickets, what dates, oh, and so forth. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. First of all, um, uh, yeah, again, it, it is back at the Toronto Airport, and um, you know, Richard, when you. Uh, when you uh, moderated the uh, the speaker panel, uh, it was uh, it was a couple of years ago in in Brantford, Ontario. That's right. And yeah, and it was uh, it, it was crazy because first of all, I mean you know Brantford is not a, you know a super huge metropolis. It's a wonderful town. I, I love it. It's just that you never you never think you'd have this incredible uh, speaker panel. And there was, there was Travis Walton and Stephen Bassett and Paul Hellier and all these people. So. We wanted to really try and recreate that because it was really, really special, and and people loved the information. We had all these world-class ufologists all there, you know, in one room. Um, and so we're doing it again. It, it's June twenty uh, second, twenty third, twenty fourth. So the Friday, Saturday, Sunday. The Friday is a um, is an experiencer day, uh, led by Kathleen Martin. You know, one of the, the the finest researchers in the world when it comes to experiencers and the abductees. Uh, she'll be and doing niece, a, a she was the niece job. of Betty and Barney Hill, of course. Yes, absolutely. You know, and so so she grew up; she's lived it uh, her entire life. Um, and um, so she'll be doing a workshop in the morning and a presentation in the afternoon. Uh, Leslie Mitchell Clark and Wes Ro- um, uh, Wes Roberts will be um, um, also there doing uh, doing a you know, presentation and workshop. So so that is on the um, on the Friday. On the Saturday, then the majority of our uh, uh, keynote speakers will be there, including uh, Linda Moulton Howe, Stanton Friedman, uh, Victor. Hello, Victor. How are you? Just fine, uh, Steve. He'll be, actually, he'll be speaking on the Sunday. Uh, Grant Cameron, um, Susan Collins, Debbie Ziegelmeyer. In fact, I'm, I'm down here in Los Angeles at the, uh, uh, the MUFON board meetings this weekend, and, and Debbie is on the board as well. Now, she is a master diver. Uh, and she studies UFOs, the submerged UFOs. And so she'll be doing a special presentation on the Great Lakes. Uh, you know, what sightings have been there. There are structures under the water that no one knows about in the Great Lakes. Um, so that's going to be really cool. Really? I wasn't, I'm not aware yeah. of that. That's fascinating. Yeah. I know, neither was I. So as uh, she says, I wanted to get her, you know, a small presentation while I was here. And she said, no, you're going to have to wait till June. Um, and then she does another presentation, which, you know, she and her brother, Chuck Sikowski, has, have been um, to uh, Roswell over 20 times excavating different sites. And on one of her um, digs, they found an artifact. And it was, then they analyzed it. And she'll, she'll be, you know, giving us all the details. But 
this artifact, the the you know the composition of it was very strange and, and really um, highly unlikely that it's found naturally. Um, you know, um, in, in the environment there. Well, that's exciting. New Mexico. So that so that's pretty cool too. So we're we're really looking forward to Debbie Ziegelmeyer. If I could just jump in, and, Stu, because I think it's sure. important to mention uh, that Stanton Friedman. Uh, this will be, I understand, his sort of his penultimate appearance, live appearance. He's doing the Roswell uh, conference uh, in in uh, July, but this will be, the unless you're going down to Roswell, folks, this will be your last chance to see Stanton Friedman uh, at a conference like this, right? After this, that's it. He's hanging him up. But, I mean, he's, he'll still do radio and so forth, but this will be his last appearance at a conference. Yes. No, you're, you're absolutely right. And uh, he was saying, uh, you know, Stu, I'm 84 years old. I'm not a spring chicken anymore. Uh, you know, this, this gallivanting around the world is, uh, is getting old. So you're absolutely right. He'll still uh, continue to do um, uh, radio interviews, uh, Skype. Uh, you know, if, if a cam- camera crew comes to his house, he'll he'll do an interview there, that sort of thing. But he's uh, he's looking forward to uh, slowing down a bit with regards to or, or slowing down a lot when, when it comes to travel. Uh, but he's still going to con- continue his research. And uh, you know, he said, you know, I'm no whole far, Stu. I'm I'm going to tell people how it is. Right. Uh, you know, according to the, the world, according to Stanton. <laughs> exactly. We should also mention again, Sunday the 24th at uh, 1.30 p.m. is the Disclosure Roundtable, and I'll be uh, moderating that. Um, let, me get, um, let, me, let me get Chris Stiles in here. Chris, just tell us a little bit about when you're going to be speaking uh, and um, what your presentation will entail. I believe that I'm scheduled for, uh, Stu can correct me if I'm wrong, I think it's 10.30 Sunday morning. That's correct. That's yeah, correct. Okay. Yeah. And um, what I'm going to do is, is, of course, speak about the Shag Harbor incident. And, you know, I'm going to kind of encapsulate the history of it. But at the same time, uh, a good chunk of my presentation will be dealing with a lot of the new evidence and some of the effort that's been done research-wise that hasn't made it into the book or the documentary. Because, you know, it's still an active case, really. Um, Shag Harbor, I often like to say, is the gift that keeps on giving. And uh, we're going to give some of that up to Toronto when I'm up there. Excellent. And we will uh, we'll discuss Shag Harbor in more detail uh, towards the top of the hour and then for the, or towards the top of this uh, next hour, rather. Uh, we'll uh, come back. We'll talk about the state of disclosure. Of course, uh, the... Um, uh, the current status of uh, ATIP and uh, how Robert Bigelow fits into this and what Louis Elizondo is up to. And uh, we'll also get into, as Victor mentioned earlier, the Ancient Alien episode recently featuring uh, John Podesta, Hillary Clinton's uh, campaign manager for the last presidential election. We'll uh, also talk about Shag Harbor, Falcon Lake, and much more. Stay with us right here on The Conspiracy Show. When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Curiosity, or did the devil make you do it? Whatever the reason, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show 
with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. We have a bit of a UFO disclosure roundtable going here ourselves. Victor Vigiani, Executive Director of Zeland Communications, Stu Bundy, Assistant National Director of MUFON, former CTV reporter, and uh, Chris Stiles, an uh, independent UFO researcher who's uh, best known for his work on Shag Harbor, the author, uh, the co-author of Dark Object about Shag Harbor, and uh, the co-author, along with uh, Graham Sims, of Impact to Contact. Uh, let me start with you uh, first, uh, Chris. I wanted to Victor and I were talking about this off the air, and, and my producer Albert mentioned when he came in that the the um, the Shag Harbor, not the Shag Harbor, the Falcon Lake commemorative coin has now sold out. And um, what do you think was behind that? What, why did the Royal Mint decide this year of all years uh, to issue a coin about Falcon Lake? Well, I don't know the answer to that, but I can tell you they're trying to figure that out in Shag Harbor. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. Why not Shag Harbor? <laughs> yeah, I um. I don't know. I mean, there's been uh, special things that have commemorated the Shag Harbor event in the past, such as the postal cancellation stamp, you know, that they give at the little post office there. Right. Uh, you know, those kind of things. Uh, those things are a mystery to me and of little concern. You know, I'm the guy who likes to get out of the armchair and knock on doors and round up witnesses and harass people for documents, etc. But uh, it does raise a thing. Perhaps there'll be a chance yet it'll be commemorated in that way or some other. I don't know. Of little interest to me. All right. Victor, you had an interesting story because you actually rang somebody up over there. That's right. Uh, In addition to what what Chris was talking about, uh, just after the coin came out, I got the news from a a friend of mine. And I said, geez, where where is this coming from? And uh, so I called the Mint. I took some time, and I called the, the Mint up in Ottawa, and it took me four or five stages to go through, but eventually I got to a public relations individual. His name is uh, Mr. Reeves. I forget his first name. In any case, we spent uh, almost a half hour on the phone, and I said, you know, what's the reasoning behind this whole thing? He said, well, we gather our um, sort of a, the top ten list of, of cultural events, or events that are of cultural interest, and um, we thought that, uh, that this one uh, would be ranking up there in the top three and so they have a committee uh, put together to find out you know which which event might be the most uh, uh, I guess of interest to, to to people and they came up with the Falcon Lake incident uh, and they made a coin actually it's really not a it's not a round coin it's almost like a teardrop it's not round hmm. it's a strange um, strange shape coin uh, and from that, they um, they expected to really um, raise people's interest in the whole UFO issue. No, not at all. It's just a cultural interest. That's all that he said. And I tried four or five times to pin him down. But what I did find out was of real interest is where does this originate from? He said, well, the the whole initiative begins with funding that comes directly from the Minister of Finance. So what does that mean? That means that the, the office of the Minister of Finance has in some way authorized a coin about UFOs. Now, I'm not sure what that means in the big picture. It may be some interest, little interest, or big interest. But the fact of the matter is, in addition, if you begin connecting all the other dots that that, uh, Stu and I have been developing over the last little while with the Canadian Research Council on UFOs, that is a very interesting, what I call a converging line of evidence pointing towards just perhaps 
In addition to NORAD, the United States government and Canada have a lot in common about what this whole disclosure issue is. And that's one of the feelings that I have about the reasoning behind this. Government knows what's going on, and it's not just a myth. They know something is going on. Uh, Stu, any thoughts on that? Why now? Why this, uh, why this coin on Falcon Lake? Well, no, I, I, I don't know about the coin, but getting back, getting, we're adding on to what um, Victor was saying. You know, he's absolutely right. This is a, a paramount concern, and it should be, um, to all Canadians. Uh, you know, there are things flying over our heads um, that, that we don't know about. The government's not telling us. Uh, you know, the Falcon Lake incident it is definitely one of the top, top five, top ten. I agree with Chris. You know, Shag Harbor, that was a no-brainer. Should have been Shag Harbor. Um, I mean, that story in itself, and I know he's going to get into it, and, um, you know, I was down uh, in Shag Harbor last October for the 50th anniversary, and it was just absolutely amazing listening to uh, a lot of the actual witnesses. Uh, uh, you know, Lori Wickens, um, he's, uh, you know, coming out of their mouths, the story, it's like it happened yesterday, and it's, it's like this story's like an onion. And when you hear Chris tell it, and, and he was so riveting, I said, you have to come to Toronto. You've got to come and speak and tell your story for all these folks who haven't heard it here. But it is. It's like an onion. You peel it back, you know, and there, there was, a, there was a, a, a secret a naval base in Shelburne. You know, they were, they were laying um, sensors on the, on the uh, bottom of the ocean uh, to pick up Russian subs. You know, one of the stories was that, the, you know, Shaghart, that the crash could have been a, a Russian satellite. There's all sorts of things. And then to me, the, the one that gave me shivers, and again, Chris says it's so much better, I'll let him say it, but there was a deathbed confession of one of the Navy divers. And I, I put a lot of stock in deathbed confessions, you know, because when you're going to meet your maker, and you, you have some doubt, am I, is there heaven, is there hell? Well, I'm not going to lie in my last breath. Right. Uh, you know, okay, so there is a, there is a hell. Uh, I want to go to heaven. So I, I put a lot of stock in this, and the deathbed confession is, is crazy. So I'll let, I'll let him talk yeah, about that. Yeah, well, we were going to uh, hold off on, on that, but let's we let's go for it. Uh, uh, Chris, Okay. he said the table I, I, for you. I, I would jump in and say, though, I, I agree with uh, Stu on the importance of Shag Harbor, but Falcon Lake is certainly a worthy case. And uh, a lot of information came to me when I was in Ottawa in the mid-'90s on that, but we'll save that for another time. Um, since Stu has brought up the deathbed confession, uh, Basically, I, I would lump that in with the, with the startling testimony of the Granby divers. And, you know, one of the misleading things, if you just viewed the documentaries or even read the book, is sometimes, you know, you, you don't get a sense of the arrow of time in this thing as I investigated. Um, you know, it was with encouragement of people like Stanton Friedman that I jumped into it when he couldn't answer my questions. And the thing is, in the beginning, um, you know, it was information overload. The first people I found were the Granby divers of the fleet diving unit. And they told me a story I was hardly ready for at the time. Uh, you know, I just read the news clippings of that, but these divers were telling me that, in fact, Shag Harbor was secondary to the Shelburne incident, which was happening simultaneously about 25 miles away and just offshore, literally a half mile from Canada's most secret base which was a U.S. base on Canadian soil. 
Canadian forces stationed Shelburne. Two UFOs were sitting on the bottom. One was lending assistance, repairing the other. And these divers claimed they were down there and shot 400 feet of film. Wow. Uh, well, that goes way beyond what was ported in the press, oh, even though Shay Harbor... <laughs> you know, went out as a line story around the world. It was a headline story. Uh, there was much more to it that only come to light in my reinvestigation as I started in the 90s. Just give us the thumbnail sketch of it. Take us back to October 67, uh, Chris, for, for those not familiar with the details. Sure. Um, October 67, Canada's centennial year. Anybody who had been near the village of Shag Harbor on Old Highway 3, which is the southwestern tip of Nova Scotia on that night, and the night was October the 4th, it was a clear night. The moon had already set. It was so clear you could see sixth-magnitude stars without binoculars. And what happened is if you'd been out on the road, and we're talking 1120 at night, anybody who'd looked up would have seen a set of flashing lights. And they went in a pattern, one, two, three, four, and then they would all flash, and this would repeat over and over. Not normal commercial air traffic. Anyway, these lights hovered for several minutes over the waters of Shag Harbor, and eventually tilted to a 45-degree angle, descended to the water surface and hit, producing a bright flash and the sound of impact. People who were on the highway tended to lose sight of it behind the tree line. When they got near the shoreline, this thing was still floating on the water, and it now appeared as a pale yellow dome of light, unlike it did in the air. Many people called the nearby RCMP detachment in Barrington Passage, and they responded. They received seven calls that night. In fact, Lori Wickens, who Stu mentioned there, mm -hmm. one of the very colorful witnesses who remembers it well, he was the very first person to call. One of the unique things about this case, Richard, is that no one reported a UFO. Everyone who called simply said that they thought a plane had crashed into the sound or that lights had gone into the water. The RCMP responded when they arrived on the scene this dome of light was still floating on the water, maneuvering under its own power. And it was headed toward open sea. And what about they, the yellow foam? Tell me about the yellow foam. Yeah, well, what happened is uh, the next thing that was key was they called the nearby lifeboat from the life-saving station in Clark's Harbor. It made its way to the scene, and the RCMP commandeered two local boats and headed to the last known surface position. Just before they reached it, the, the light either submerged or disappeared, depending on, you know, the detail you get who you speak to. But they stayed on the surface. But when they did get there and put their lights upon the water, what they found was a streak of dense yellow foam that was 80 feet wide and half a mile in length. And people who are experienced with local conditions say it was not normal tide foam, tidal foam. In fact, one of the men in the ship, uh, was not fussy about putting a ship in it because he had concerns for buoyancy, found it very strange, was yellow, smelt of sulfur, and some of it at the lead end was still bubbling to the surface as it made toward open sea. Hmm. Did anyone have the presence of mind to collect any of that up? There was an attempt. One of the fishermen uh, attempted to grab some in a dip net, you know, a, a fine dip net, but it just tended to you know, evaporate, like dissipate, you know what I mean? So there wasn't anything. Um, it, Norm Smith was the gentleman who tried to do this. But the thing is, you got to remember, the main concern at the time is they thought they were looking for survivors. They thought that a plane had come down. Again, no one reported a UFO here, which is very unique. It was the next few days 
as reports were coming out to the press that the Navy, that the Coast Guard, and other agencies that were involved in the search, including those two nearby U.S. bases, um, were referring to it as a UFO. So that label was hung on it by the authorities. Interesting. Victor, go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to throw some uh, by you, by you, Chris. Um, then, um, in your in your book, your earlier book, um, uh, Dark Object, you mentioned NORAD, and you spent quite a bit of time talking when an incoming target appeared mm-hmm. on the North uh, was a North Bay radar or something, and and I think we're, we're just scrambled out of North Bay, and did the radar actually pick up some sort of craft moving at seven thousand five hundred miles an hour, stopping, hovering? and then continuing on at 4,400 miles an hour. Do you, do you have anything more to say about that? Well, these were details given by somebody who worked at the Shelburne base to us mm-hmm. and uh, had also served a Canadian Forces station, Barrington at Baccarat. And it was part of that NORAD chain. It was what was known as the Pine Tree Line. Everybody's usually more familiar with the term the Dew Line. Right. There was actually a Mid-Canada and a Pine Tree Line, and the Baccarat base was this end of that. Um, staffers at that base were privy to that information at passes. We we don't have, you know, I have a large amount of documentation. We don't have actually have documents that describe that event where this thing entered the atmosphere. But what we do have is many of the military telexes, the primary form of communication that went between the base, and you can see by their response and their concern. And, you know, one of the most telling things that's great when you look at these documents, you often get more in the margin notes than you do in the body of text. For sure. And I can actually identify the writing of most of the people. And I, I managed to meet a lot of them face-to-face at the air desk, you know, that had served at the time in Ottawa where they ordered the underwater search. And, you know, they told me face-to-face they believed this was the real deal. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. I think one of the things that screams that is one of the telexes that, that orders the underwater search at the top Squadron leader William Bain, who's quoted in the Chronicle Herald article that was went out as a line story around the world, writes UFO in big block letters at the top and underlines it three times. I've looked at thousands of these documents and reports, and that's the only time I've seen that. When I asked him, he said, well, <laughs> as far as we were concerned, this was it, you know? Is that what makes it... Shag Harbor is often described as the, the, the world's only officially documented UFO incident? Yes, well, the thing, that's it. I mean, the thing is, um, like, there was, a, for example, a memo that circulated through defense headquarters 36 hours after the incident began. And there, there's four little paragraphs that describe the incident in a briefing to the defense minister and others, and they all sign off on it. And in the third paragraph, it actually says, a preliminary investigation has been conducted by the Rescue Coordination Center in Halifax. And it has been determined that no flare, float, aircraft, or in fact any known object is responsible for this UFO. At one point, at what point uh, is it seen traveling under the water? Well, I, I don't suppose it was seen in the, in the sense of you know a visual, right? But. Initially, of course, as you know, the Coast Guard arrived, and eventually seven naval divers were sent to the last known uh, surface position, at, you know, just half a mile out from the impact site. And, you know, they searched there for five days. But what we now know is that that nearby Shelburne base 
which was Canada's most secret base at the time, it was the coordination center for submarine detection for the whole Atlantic Ocean, and it was hooked into two major grids. One was called the MAD grid, which stood for Magnetic Anomaly Detection, and the other one was simply a hydrophone system where they microphoned the whole Atlantic Ocean. And they were tracking this thing as it moved under the water, and also they had aircraft going over and dropping sonar buoys. Chris, i got to jump in here. We're going to take a quick time out. We'll come back. Chris Stiles talking about Shag Harbor, Stu Bundy, the Assistant Director of MUFON Canada, Victor Vigiani from Zealand News Network, back with more in a moment. Stay with us. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. If you're sure your phone isn't tapped, call now. 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. Stu Bundy stays with us. Alien Cosmic Expo coming up June 22, 23, 24 at the Toronto Airport Marriott Hotel, aliencosmicexpo.com, or go to the live events page at strangeplanet.ca. Victor Vigiani from Zealand News Network and Chris Stiles is here talking Shag Harbor, uh, co-author with Don Ledger of Dark Objects, and um, the, uh, the more recent one is impact to contact. Uh, now, before the uh, the break, Chris, you were talking about uh, the Navy uh, dive team that went down, uh, and they were looking, f- was it five days later? Or they were, um, anyway, pick up where you left off during the break about these, this di- these divers that went down looking for this, uh, whatever it was, that landed on the water just uh, off of the, the coast of Shag Harbor. Yeah. Um, there was a... a you know, what, what happened is on the first night, of course, the uh, Coast Guard arrived from the life-saving station, and uh, they got on scene and searched until 3 a.m. and planned to return at first light. Um, they had a couple of RCMP divers on the scene and were trying to re-interview witnesses and just get things together. Uh, they were also checking, of course, with the Rescue Coordination Center as to see if there was any late or missing aircraft. But as the composite uh, details were being pooled together, it was becoming pretty obvious they were dealing with something unusual. Um, Their observations in Shag Harbor were forwarded through the RCMP to uh, uh, Defense Headquarters in Ottawa. From there, it was shuffled down to what was the Air Desk, Canada's equivalent of Blue Book. But then again, the Air Desk was more than that because we actually did on-site investigations, Shag Harbor, Falcon Lake being a couple of them that year. And to put that in perspective, that year they would have received 256 reports from RCMP or police that they thought were worthy, and there were actually nine on-site investigations to give you some perspective. Anyway, what happened is once clearance was given to Squadron Leader Bain to spend the money, he sent... Uh, a request to Maritime Command in those days, which was in Halifax, to order an underwater search, and seven divers from the fleet diving unit were sent down. And they hired a local tender, and they looked for the next five days until last light on Sunday evening. The crash uh, occurred like would have been Wednesday night, 11.20, and at that point the effort was was canceled, uh, claiming no results officially. 
However, interestingly enough, there was no attempt to explain it away with some kind of cover story like a weather balloon or mishap or whatever. Um, and ironically, however, though, the story that was unknown to the public, the Shelburne story, um, you know, Nova Scotia, Canada in 67 wasn't like New Mexico in 47. You just couldn't send everybody home or claim war jitters or something like this. Um, but I think somebody was half clever in Ottawa and looked at this and thought, you know what? They knew the real operation outside the public eye was 25 miles away off the coast of Shelburne. Let's let them look at Jack Harbor. We couldn't put it away. Uh, you couldn't hide that anymore, so let them look there. They already knew the thing had left the area under the water, and they were already down trying to gather or contain any debris or any artifact they might have found. So, unfortunately, Shag Harbor was, in a way, its own cover. Hmm. Uh, we, we do want to talk about Shelburne, just, but I just want to invite Stu Bundy to jump in here. I don't want to leave you uh, hanging there, Stu. If you have any uh, <laughs> no, questions I... or comments on this, please jump in at any time. Yeah, no, it, it truly is. You know Canada's Roswell, um, and, and you know the way the way Chris uh, has has investigated this um, throughout the years. I don't I don't know of any other um, UFO investigation uh, that has had this kind of coverage and this kind of in depth analysis and just basically hard work from any other you know any other uh, researcher. Uh, you, you can think of um, you know Stan Friedman and uh, and Roswell. Um, I mean that you know that. It parallels what, what Chris has done for this. Um, but yeah, you know, like you said, there's still a lot of questions. Um, and, um, you know, hopefully, hopefully Chris will get to the, uh, the bottom of it, of it you know, someday. Uh, but we may never, we may, may never know for sure. Uh, but what, what I, what I do know is that, uh, um, you know, those, those deathbed confessions were, um, are, are quite telling. And, and I really think, um, you know, we've got something there. Victor, I know you had a question about the Shelburne incident. I think it's important to, to recognize, or at least try to obtain the distinction between what happened in Shelburne and uh, you know twenty-five or thirty-five uh, miles uh, to the other side of the to the peninsula. What happened in Shag Harbor? And my understanding, Chris, is that um, you had a long conversation, um, and was it at times pleasant with a fellow named Harry? Uh, was was he one of the divers? Yes, he was. Okay, he was one of the seven yeah. Granby divers. Right. And right. Um, you know, one of the things when we released Dark Object and that came out, that these men we granted them anonymity, but it was a very limited anonymity. There mm-hmm. wasn't that many men in the fleet diving unit in those days in Halifax. Yeah, but you you really had some. Uh, I don't know if if it came to uh, fisticuffs or anything, but he gave you a pretty hard time in trying to separate the two incidents. And he said to you, "You'll never get the Shelby story." Well, isn't that what he said? Yeah, yeah. And 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 the thing is, um, you know, Shag Harbor like was a headline story. It was out. It was the one the public knew, right? Mm-hmm. But. What happened in Shelburne, they tried to keep a lid on, and they did. In fact, you know, it was only a scandal in the 80s that revealed the true nature of the base there, where this was happening. Mm-hmm. For a long time, it operated under the cover story. There's even a U.S. website that covers this quite well, you know, an official U.S. Navy one. But the cover story for the Shelburne base was that it was an oceanographic, hydrographic research station. But, in fact, it was the Coordination Center for Submarine Detection for North America. Right, mm-hmm. and when the base opened in '55, it flew uh, the U.S. flag only. In '62, it was a joint effort, 
you know, similar to an ORAD arrangement, right? But that base, you know, you can imagine, you know, if you've got two strange craft sitting on the bottom, halfway between the docks of the base and nearby McNutt Island, I mean, <laughs> they quarantined all the men, you know, the, they put the clamps down, the media, they tried to close Sandy Point Road to local residents and everything. But the world was distracted by Shag Harbor and what was happening elsewhere. I, I mean, Shag Harbor, Shelburne, were just the tip of the iceberg. You know, down east here, we often refer to it as the night of the UFOs, because if you look at police files, I mean, there's just UFO reports everywhere from that same night. And in fact, just off the coast there, there was a dragger with 18 men that was surrounded by four UFOs, and they called the Mounties, and they came in and they filed a report that yep. same night. All right, we've got to take And a... this was before Shag Harper hit the media. All right, we'll come back and we'll explore the rest of the iceberg. Victor Vigiani, Zeland News Network, Chris Stiles, Dark Object, the Shag Harbor UFO incident, Stu Bundy from MUFON Canada. Back with more in a moment. Stay with us. Keeping an eye on the new world order. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Happy birthday to you. Hey, where's mom going? She hasn't even opened her presents. Well, son, she just turned 65, which means there's new offers for her at Specsavers. What? Yep, an eye exam now costs her nothing, and she can get 30% off lens upgrades with any pair of glasses. Wow. So, can we cut the cake now? You betcha. No-cost eye exams are for eligible seniors at all participating locations with costs covered by provincial health care. Conditions apply. See specsavers.ca. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You want the truth? You can handle the truth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To get the truth, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. Stu Bundy, Assistant Director of MUFON Canada, is uh, here. Victor Vigiani, Zealand uh, Communications, and Chris Stiles, uh, the uh, the co-author of Dark Object. We're talking about the, uh, the Shag Harbor UFO incident. Uh, but perhaps we... As Chris explained, that's provided its own cover because the real action perhaps was up in in uh, Shelburne near a uh, a joint U.S. Canadian submarine base. But let me just bring Stu Bundy in here uh, because he's just staying with us uh, for, for one more segment. And Stu, I just wanted to give you an opportunity once again to uh, to promote the um, the Alien Cosmic Expo conference happening up in June. So give us all the particulars again. Uh, sure, absolutely. June 22nd, 23rd, 24th. Uh, that's the Friday, Saturday, Sunday. You can get tickets uh, at the website aliencosmicexpo.com. Uh, the Friday is the Experiencer Day with Kathleen Martin. Uh, Saturday, a full day with speakers. Sunday, a full day with speakers. Uh, Chris will be uh, doing his presentation Sunday morning, and then there is a, a, a roundtable, a disclosure roundtable uh, moderated by yourself, Richard. Thank you very much for, for agreeing to help us out again this year. Um, but, uh, you know, it's the disclosure subject, and I, and I do have something to say to Chris about, uh, about Shag Harbor in a second, but I just have to get this. And the, the disclosure subject is bigger than ever since December 16, 2017, last December, uh, when, the, when the Pentagon 
um, uh, UFO video. The first one was, re- was released. You know, there's three of them now. They're called uh, uh, Gimbal, Fleur, and, uh, and Go Fast. And, uh, you know, it, that was a game changer. Uh, I've been in this for 15 years as, as a field investigator. We've got, you know, 30 field investigators. They're all volunteers across Canada. We have 500 MUFON members, 5,000 worldwide. We're in 23, uh, 27 countries now. Um, but this is, this is huge. It's nothing that's ever happened like this. The Americans are releasing this. What is Canada? What's Canadian government doing? They're doing nothing. Um, you know, and Victor can attest to this. Uh, from an inquiry from, from Victor, the response he got from the, from the Department of Defense was some lame uh, picture of a Billy Meyer UFO with, with the caption underneath saying something to the effect that, uh, sorry, we don't bother ourselves with uh, a trivial things like this that aren't real. I, I can't, I'm just paraphrasing. Victor can, can, um, can correct me there. Uh, but uh, that's ridiculous. You know, everybody is coming out. Um, uh, the, the British Department of Defense released tens of thousands of, of uh, documents. Um, Peru, uh, we've got some uh, the Chilean Air Force video. Uh, you know, everyone's coming out. And what are we doing? Nothing. All right. Uh, well, you know, it's funny you mentioned the... Um you know the the government's official response was we don't we don't bother with trivial matters like this. But going back to 1967 in Shag Harbor, that was a banner year for UFOs. In and not only in and around you know October fourth uh, of 67, but you know there was Falcon Lake. There was uh, uh, there was a, a famous sighting in Calgary around that time. There was a famous crop circle I think in Camrose. Uh, sightings yep, were up like absolutely. like threefold or fourfold from the previous year. And then they, uh, Chris Witkowski uncovered these uh, documents at the National Archives, something like 28 pages, showing just exactly how interested the Canadian government was. Someone was preparing a, a, a briefing for, I suppose it was Paul Hellyer's uh, replacement at Minister, Minister, the Minister, as Minister of Defense. So obviously in 67, there was a hell of a lot going on, and the Canadian government was clearly very interested. No, they absolutely were. And when I, when I talked to um, Paul Hellyer a couple of weeks ago, and I said, you know, you were there. You were at the highest um, position as defense uh, minister, uh, minister of defense. And, you know, what did you know? I mean, it, it, and I certainly asked him about uh, uh, Project Magnet uh, with uh, Wilbur Smith and from 1950 to 53, where they were studying um, um, magnetic anomalies because they, they believe that the saucers uh, would tap into the, uh, the magnetic field of the Earth, and that's how they use it for propulsion. And they also uh, were, were surmising that um, how they, um, you know, uh, controlled the craft, how they actually, you know, directed it and moved was through psychic ability. And this is back in, you know, in the early 50s. And Paul said he, he didn't know anything. He didn't hear anything about... Uh, um, Project Magnet, and, and you know, um, or, or what the results were, or any of the uh, data, and he didn't hear anything about UFOs until um, you know in the 2000s when you know he started hooking up with uh, Victor Vigiani, and uh, um, and it all started with um, someone got him to read the book by um, Corso uh, the day after Roswell, right? And he said that was that was a game changer. So he didn't even know uh, what was going on. So it, it's almost kind of like uh, mirroring the U.S., that um, there are certain uh, 
departments that are very, very dark. Well, and, um, here's something interesting about these documents, and then we'll get back to, to Chris and, and Shag Harbor. But th- these documents, again, from the National Archives, showing just how interested the government was in 67. And this is about a couple months after Paul Hellyer had left, the Honorable Paul Hellyer had left the Ministry of Defense. The documents show the investigation into UFOs was a little bit of a hot potato in Canada, as, it, as in it was frequently handed off between departments. When a new report came in, researchers would first decide if the object was a meteor or fireball. If so, it would be directed to the NRC. If it was something else, it would be then put in one of three categories. Class A, worthy of investigation. Class B, interesting, but you don't need to look into it. And Class C, boring. And then they involved other, several other agencies, including the RCMP, NRC, Defense Research Board, and then, this is kind of weird, the Department of National Health and Welfare. What do you make of that, gentlemen? Certainly, well, wow. tell you, certainly sounds like a hot potato. Why? Why would the the the, uh, the Department of National Health be involved? Uh, that one is a bit of a puzzler. I haven't heard of that, but I can tell you that um, you know after Shag Harbor, after Falcon Lake, right? There was an analysis done by the Department of National Defense, and the determination that was made was that the phenomena was worthy of study, but it should be handed off to another department and not appear to be an issue of national defense. They thought that it should be handled to the NRC for what they deemed serious scientific investigation. And when that first happened, there were two people that took the bull by the horns there, and that was Professor Tennyson at the University of Toronto and uh, Rupert McNeil uh, of Wolfville, Nova Scotia at Acadia University. And they made a pretty good effort. The only trouble was they'd put a, a, a rider in place where if they needed field units, they were to call the RCMP. But for some reason, that never, ever happened. And when these two men retired, nobody took up you know, the cause with, with them. And it just faded away. And they just started filing reports like they did with Blue Book in the States, which at that point had been canceled. And this continued. And those reports would eventually make their way to the Herzberg Institute in Ottawa, up the street from the Prime Minister's at 100, but in 1999 they stopped accepting them. Hmm. All right, uh, we have about four or five minutes before the top of the hour. Let's uh, let's get circle back to Shag Harbor, and um, Victor and I were talking off air about you know we still don't have it sort of concrete in our minds about what was going on in Shelburne and how that relates to Shag Harbor. Uh, but there was something very strange going on in Shelburne. This is around the same time, right? The same night, the night after? Uh, well, according, according to local residents, they place it at the same time. Uh, the residents here remember the attempt to close uh, Sandy Point Road that many of them lived on. This is the one single road that went out to the U.S. base there. And, right. uh, you know, they could only do that for so long without attracting attention, of course. But, like I say, you know, they were certainly, you know, things were free and open in terms of what was happening in Shag Harbor. CBC cameras filmed the dive effort, you know, the next day on the local tender. Um, in some of the early documentaries, you see a few seconds of that lifted out. But, um, you know, there was so much happening. But Shag Harbor, you know, by allowing the media in, by having the Navy do an underwater search, it kind of eclipsed the interest in everything else. But, right. like... That night, there'd just been so many sightings. But and Victor, I mean, what was going on 
up in Shelburne. I mean, there were barges coming in, and they, they were trying to get something off the the, uh, the the floor of the ocean, right? Well, in in uh, in Dark Object, in uh, in I forget what chapter number it is, but on on page one twenty one, uh, Chris Chris talks about um, uh, the barge is one thing, and then uh, they speak about an atomic furnace, mm-hmm. and the the attempt to explain away what might be down below there and hoisting it up and mm-hmm. trying to use that as a cover story as to what might have happened with five or six or six or seven ships in the area. There seemed to be total confusion, uh, A, to be what was happening, and then B, why did they decide on a story called uh, an atomic furnace being hoisted up by a barge? It, it's totally confusing to me. It's an odd one. So they brought in a barge, and they were going to do another, what, another rescue operation? There was something on the, on the floor of the ocean? Well, again, this is what some of the Granby divers claim. What, what is clear, because there were pictures of it in the local paper, the Shelburne Coast Guard, mm-hmm. uh, you know, of these, this huge ocean-going barge, and it had huge tarps on it. Uh, the, this thing was just an enormous thing, and the cover story, if that's what it is, claimed that they were taking nuclear furnaces, whatever that's supposed to be. Um, they came in because supposedly the barge was leaking and needed a repair. It was only in at the port for something like six hours, and it sailed again. It was supposed to take these up to St. Lawrence, to so does New York, you know, but it's a very strange story, you know. Um, you know, make of it as you will, but it's not every day that right in this time frame on the Saturday after the Shag Harbor incident is, is, you know, they haven't even called off the underwater search there, that you had this huge U.S. barge come in towed by a, a, an ocean-going U.S. tug, uh, you know, to take nuclear furnaces up to St. Lawrence. And were there not some sort of uh, attempts to get film down below? Well, yes, yeah. I mean, the... the in fact, the the diver who told me this, interestingly, I, I mean, like I've said, one of the frustrating things about the Shelburne story, and I've always referred to it as the story, unlike the Shag Harbors, that we don't have the official documents. But one of the things I was able to do was, like, when somebody came to me and they said, hi, I'm so-and-so, and they, you know, told me the position. Back in those days, they used to have this great thing in Canada called Might City Directory. It was like the phone book. But you could go through the streets numerically and that. You could go through names, and it even told you what a person's job was, right? And when I looked up the gentleman who claimed to film this, he is listed in the 1967 book as underwater naval photographer, RCN, active service. Hmm. You know, so he wasn't just some swabby in the uniform telling a tall tale. This was his position. And again, Harry, one of the divers, said to you, you'll never get this story. Is that right? Well, that's what he said. I mean, you've got to remember that when these guys come in, you know, they're not taking this stuff home. I mean, when I would ask a question, they would give me a very detailed answer, uh, such as, like, they say they found a few little artifacts and pieces in this. What did you do with them? Well, they loaded them on an old Army deuce-and-a-half truck, which they called Old Sid, and they drove it to Dartmouth, Nova Scotia, to the Defense Research Board building on Grove Street, which is still in that location. But, like I say, you know, for all the documentation we have, the orders, the the analysis of the Shag Harbor incident, that hard documentation is wanting for Shelburne. But at the same time, we have RCMP reports and other documentation that mentions that there was a second search effort and another incident there. So are we going to call that building in Dartmouth our, Dartmouth our Hangar 18? <laughs> 
Well, it's 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 the point where we lose track where the story goes cold. So, yeah, it's in um, uh, it's a place many people drive by every day between their two bridges. Well, I I said to Richard earlier, uh, Roswell has its uh, balloon story, and uh, Shelburne has its uh, atomic furnace story as mm-hmm. a cover up. So it, there seems to be some similarities. That's there. a sexier cover story for my in yeah. my book. An atomic furnace. That'll keep people at bay, though, right? You don't want to mess with that. Anyone will, you know, a weather balloon is not going to scare anybody off. But, an, you know, talking about a, a leaky, perhaps a leaky nuclear furnace. Yeah, that'll keep the folks, yeah. uh, the nosy uh, Parkers away. Uh, we'll take a time out. We'll say goodbye to Stu Bundy. Stu, I know you've got to run. Thank you so much for this. Thanks, Richard. It was great uh, being on. And, and Chris, can't wait to see you as well uh, in a few weeks. And um, thanks, Victor. You're awesome. Victor is our Canadian uh, 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 disclosure warrior. All right, Stu. All the best. Thank you. Chris Stiles and Victor, stay with us. Back with more on the other side. The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Our two-hour roundtable featuring Victor Vigiani, Executive Director at Zealand News Network, Zealand Communications. And uh, Stu Bundy, uh, executive or assistant, uh, assistant director of MUFON Canada. Uh, he has now left us, but we, uh, we still have Chris Stiles with us. Chris, the uh, co-author of Dark Object. Uh, and we're talking about the uh, UFO, uh, the uh, Shag Harbor UFO incident. Of course, he's also the co-author of Impact to Contact with uh, Graham Sims. And um, we're going to open up the phone lines as well if you have questions and comments, not only about Shag Harbor, maybe there's another UFO uh, incident in Canada you want to talk about. We can uh, perhaps get into Falcon Lake. Um, before that, let me ask uh, Victor, uh, because we were talking about you know the documents in the National Archives. There are something like 9,500 digitized documents that people mm-hmm. can go on one of these um, uh, gov.ca websites. Right. It's kind of a pain in the butt to try and source these. But tell me what is what that's all about. And then uh, I also want to talk about, you have kind of a new initiative as well called um, the Canadian Research Council on UFOs. Right. We want to talk about that as well. But l- these 9,500 documents, when were they released, and how do we get, how do we find them and search them and so forth? Well, they were released a long time ago. Um, I'm not exactly sure the actual year that they were released, but I discovered them. Um, uh, I think it was '96 or '97, and I was just paging through documents, looking for things, and I came across a page called um, Canada's UFOs: The Search for the uh, Search for the Truth. And I went, well, this is interesting. And it said, you know, click on here for data. And I started clicking, and then it came up with 9,500 files on UFOs. And I, I did a, a cursory reading of the first few. 
And what I found out was it's extremely difficult to ferret through these things, 9,000 files, and they have not made it easy for you. You go onto the site and you've got to list the date of the sighting you want, the location of the sighting that you want, and a whole bunch of other information, plus uh, what department you want. Do you want the Department of National Defense? Do you want the Department of Transport? Do you want the National Research Council? Or do you want the RCMP? And they're all categorized within those four categories. So you really have to know exactly what you're looking for. It's like, you know, you want to find a, a number in the telephone book or a person in the telephone book and you just blindly put your finger down on, on one and you just read from there. It's extremely difficult to, to, to ferret through these things. So to begin with, um, I started a week, maybe two weeks process of getting up every single day and going to this crazy site and trying to figure out how to parse through these things. And then coming up with certain kinds of documents that meant absolutely nothing. They were just, you know, UFO reports by Uncle Frank and Aunt Martha sitting in their back porch and saying that they saw a light, they reported it to the RCMP or to whoever. And you read through that four or five hundred times and it gets pretty boring. But then eventually you come up with joint intelligence reports from the Canadian Department of National Defense, intelligence councils or agencies. And you get a paragraph stating, we need to keep the UFOs under wrap and follow the U.S. policy of non-disclosure about UFOs. And wow. It, it says, and, we, and then it says directly, we need to follow the United States Air Force policy on this matter. So you've got uh, the Canadian government, this is back in, I think it was 1951 or 52 of this particular the document. So you've got the Canadian government as far back as then in lockstep in trying to keep this stuff away from the public. And then they talk about uh, what happens if a UFO were to land, who to contact, uh, where you take the thing to if it crashes, all these documents. So when you read this, after three or four hundred documents and you come up with one, maybe one, that's of even minimal significance, you have to keep on reading more and more and more and more. And I stopped at around 3,000 and something. I just couldn't take it anymore. So um, it, it'd be worthwhile to continue on. And I'm talking about letters from ministers of defense. Um, Harkness, Mr. Hellyer, they right. responded. They actually responded to people who had written to the Department of Defense. They wanted to know about UFOs. And Harkness and Hellyer and other ministers of defense said, we know nothing about these things. So, you know, when you take a look at how, um, how intrusive all this stuff could really be, if you want to sit down and go through every single um, file, you'd be there till next, you know, whenever. So it's extremely difficult. And the government has made it very, very difficult for anyone to make sense of these things, as, as Chris can, find, uh, you know, can, can corroborate. Uh, the government does not make it easy for us to find out what's going on. And what is this uh, initiative you have, this Canadian Research Council on UFOs? Well, it's, it's part and parcel of what I just said. Uh, what we want to do with, this, with, the, with the council is make um, or create an awareness among the Canadian public that uh, the government has information about this. And these files are so difficult to find. What one of my responsibilities is, at least I feel that it is, is to make this as easy as possible for regular citizens to go to the site and go to specific documents to read how the Canadian government is involved or has been involved in this. Okay? And will continue to be involved in it. That's the one responsibility that I have with, this, with the Research Council. The second thing is to make our elected officials aware of what the heck is going on. Because I'm convinced that I have proof that they have no idea what's going on. And the proof that I have it comes from former Minister of Defense Peter McKay. And when I uh, qu queried him on, uh, on a NORAD incident back in 2001, 
I explained the entire situation to him about the scrambled jets that have come off Air Force Base, where they went, the, 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 the altitude they were at, what they encountered, an LR-35 jet, medical evacuation jet out of Anchorage, Alaska, seeing exactly the same thing. He knew nothing about it, couldn't find the file that I had. Okay, so it's, it's quite clear that the people in the government uh, positions aren't read into this thing or they're, they're, they're pretty big liars, or they're really good liars. I would suspect out of courtesy, they just don't know what's going on. And that information is kind of corroborated by Paul, because back then, he didn't really have... Paul any, Hellier. Yeah, yeah, Paul Hellier, right. Uh, he, he, he didn't know anything about this. He says he was too busy you know, unifying the, the armed forces, which, which I know. I mean, I've talked to Paul enough to, to realize that that's what he was doing. So what we're trying to do with the council is make uh, these politicians... Uh, the, the current Minister of Defense, uh, Mr. Trudeau, the entire cabinet aware of what's going on. And that's the reason by, why if you go to the uh, MUFON site and have a look at the, the CRCU letters that I've sent to the Minister of Defense and to Mr., um, Mr. Trudeau and to all cabinet members, indicating to them that these files are there, that they must look at them. And that's available on the MUFON website right now. And I've faxed that letter to each individual. I have sent an email to each individual, and I've sent um, uh, uh, registered copies in the mail that cost me 20 bucks each, by the way. And so we want to find out if these people will respond to my request, my direct request, to find out what's going on. Do they have the courage to come forward, and, and I've invited them to the Alien Cosmic Expo to come. We'll have chairs ready for them open, in reserve, if they want to sit down there with us and become open about this. And it's a challenge to the government, and I do not want to be confrontational. I want to help them understand, because I know they don't know what's going on. So it's an educational process that we're involved in here, right. educating people like the former minister, uh, pardon me, by the, uh, the, the current minister of defense and the, and the prime minister of Canada. Uh, Chris, I want to... I want to talk to you about other um, Atlantic uh, UFO incidents in Atlantic Canada. Um, aside from Shag Harbor, which is and and Shelburne, which are sort of the the um, the biggies. What other uh, Atlantic Canada UFO incidents are, have you been researching? Well, why don't, why don't I tell you my favorite one? Yes, please. And it's become a favorite down east here of some of the other people that dabble in the phenomena of Paul Kimball, etc. Um, there was a case in Lower Sackville, Nova Scotia here in 1976, and it, it, really an unusual one. What happened is uh, a woman, uh, and back then all the names still appeared, the Privacy Act wasn't like it is today. She called the RCMP detachment nearby Bedford, Nova Scotia, just outside Metro, and said, could you please send an officer to the house? Uh, there's a UFO over my house, and I'm not feeling too good about it. So <laughs> the RCMP dispatch it. Near midnight, he arrives at the Lower Sackville residence, and when he gets there, in fact, there were three UFOs over the house. And the officer describes them as laws and sort of oblong-shaped craft in three sections. And the middle section is kind of like a T-strainer with a green light moving around in it. He stays with these people for two hours on the front lawn, drinking coffee, sharing his field glasses with the residents, brings out some neighbors and that, writes this nice little one-page report about this, and expresses an opinion, which they typically don't, 
at the end that says, look, after he communicated with the uh, Halifax International Airport at the time, the nearby Shearwater Base in Dartmouth, and cars in the distance that were at other hills and had a good vantage point. And he expresses the opinion that what he's seen could not be a distant astronomical object and was not conventional craft, because uh, I would have been able to tell the difference. And he signs the report. Well, when I found this report, I stuck it on my fridge because it was nearby, and one day I was in the area and knocked on the door, hoping the woman still lived there, and she did. Mrs. Webster answered the door and invited me in and says, oh, I'd love to talk to you. Her husband had passed away since this report. This was the mid-'90s when I located her. And she basically told me exactly what was in the report without any embellishments. It said, we've been watching for years, but we've never seen anything since. Her, her, her adult son was still living with her and the daughter. And um, it, it was interesting, but it didn't go beyond that. However, um, let me just get you to hold on, Chris. Excuse, pardon the interruption. We'll, uh, sure. we'll pick up on the other side. Uh, Chris Stiles is with us. We're talking about UFO incidents in Atlantic Canada. Uh, UFO disclosure, you name it, we're on it. Victor Vigiani, Zeland News Network here as well. Back with more in a moment. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Happy birthday to you. Hey, where's mom going? She hasn't even opened her presents. Well, son, she just turned 65, which means there's new offers for her at Specsavers. What? Yep, an eye exam now costs her nothing, and she can get 30% off lens upgrades with any pair of glasses. Wow. So, can we cut the cake now? You betcha. No-cost eye exams are for eligible seniors at all participating locations with costs covered by provincial health care. Conditions apply. See specsavers.ca. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Welcome back. Chris Stiles is with us, co-author of Dark Object. We're talking about the Shag Harbor UFO incident, other UFO incidents in Atlantic Canada. Victor Vigiani stays with us from Zelan News Network. And uh, uh, Chris, you were telling us about this other incident. Uh, this this woman who saw these objects over her house. How long were they hovering? About two hours, did you say? Two hours. Yes. My word. She yeah. one was described as a, looking like a lozenge, and the other was like a. You know, they were all similar. There were three right. of them, and the officer estimated they were about five hundred feet in altitude. Okay, and you tracked this, this woman oh. is uh, was still around when you tracked her down in the the mid nineties. That's correct. Yes. Okay, she invited you into the house, and she she basically corroborated everything uh, that was stated in the report. Yeah, interesting sighting. You know, it, it's nice to see that the UFOs lingered for the officer and everything. You know, so we have an official witness. But here's where it gets interesting. At the end, he mentions the neighbors who were also witnesses to the event. Right. After Mrs. Webster completes basically telling me what's in the report, I ask if the neighbors still live next door. And she's like, oh, well, yes, but it wouldn't do you any good to speak to them. And I said, well, you know, in the interest of completeness, I, I, I will. And, oh, she said, they probably won't say anything. She says, you got to understand, we don't get along with the neighbors. So anyway, I went over and knocked there and made the effort, and there was no response at the time. I had their phone number. Everything was complete in this RCMP report. And I kept calling back. And somewhere about three weeks later, Richard, I, I, I got a response. 
And the gentleman picked up the phone. I said, is this Mr. Robert Beverett? He said, yes. I said, I'd love to speak to you about your UFO sighting back in 1976. And he said, my what? Hmm. And I said, your UFO sighting. Well, he said, I don't think I ever had one of them. And I said, well, you're listed as a witness in this RCMP report. And he said, well, who said that? I said, I guess your neighbor is the Webster's. And he says, oh, God, the Webster's could have seen anything. Uh-oh. Well, this wasn't looking very good all of a sudden. No, I'll say. But I said, hey, I do have an RCMP there, officer. And uh, he said, when was this again? And I, I repeat the date, and he says, I don't even think we lived here then. So I can hear him asking his wife over the phone, dear, when did we move down from Ontario? And she said, who is it? What is it? He goes, never mind. When did we move down? She, said, she tells him the date. And he goes, well, I guess I was here. But he says, Follow. he says, I think you're spinning your tires here. And I can hear the wife saying, dear, what is it? And he says, oh, the Webster's or somebody saw a UFO. And she says, I can hear her saying to her husband, dear, that was the night. Remember the night? Aha. Uh-huh. And all of a sudden he pauses and he goes, just a minute. And he covers the phone. And then he comes back on. He says, yeah, I'm sorry about what I said. And I shouldn't have spoke of that about the neighbors. He goes, you got to understand, we don't get along. I was like, yes. And he says, well, um, I know what you're talking about. So I said, so you, you were a witness to this? And he says, well, I didn't see anything. And I said, well, can you explain? He said, well, it's kind of embarrassing, but me and my wife were upstairs hiding under the bed. Oh. <laughs> so I'm saying, hiding under the bed. Well, he says, the host was shaken and the noise was deafening. Oh, my. Meanwhile, in the report, their neighbors are on the lawn with the officer. They hear nothing. It was almost like it was calling out trying to get their attention, right? Right. And I said, this one, he says, listen, I'm a naval architect for D&D. He said, I knew this thing, whatever it was, low over the house, wasn't a Sea King or, or a Labrador helicopter. He said, I didn't want to know what it was. So I said, well, how did your name get here? He says, well, that's the funny thing. All of a sudden, the noise stopped, and I heard a knock at the door. And I come down, and that was the RCMP officer. And he wanted me to step outside and look, he says, but I wouldn't. Wow. So what was that? <laughs> you know, indeed. And and uh, I I just love that. But you know, it's almost. I found several other cases like that down east here, and it's. I I think it, they come under the heading of you know those type of cases looked into by Jacques Vallée. You know, what you might call reality transformation. And I believe there's a type where two people can stand there, but the event is experienced and witnessed very differently. Right. And it's just amazing. And it puts a tingle up your spine when they tell you this story. And, uh, you know, boy, and nobody went to the media. These cases are what I call very pure, and I just love them. Uh, it was that particular sighting, that was in 76, Was is that to be found on that .gov.ca website, do you it, know? It might be. I'm not sure. I actually found the case in Stanton Friedman's basement in Fredericton. Hmm. And he gave me a box of files to go looking through back then, just hoping to find more about Shag Harbor. And that's one of the many uh, Down East cases here I found that I spend a lot of time looking into and re-interviewing people. You know, when you think about it, we have a unique situation here in Canada. The RCMP reports, they're a disinterested third party largely. And when they go and investigate a UFO case, it's kind of like it doesn't matter if it was a murder or a theft or a stolen car. They just write it up. You know, when their training says just... Write what you see, write what you hear. And it's a great place to find and exploit great cold cases like that. And we're very lucky. 
I've got a, a bit of an insight for you, Chris. Um, there's a fellow um, up here. Um, his name is uh, Dave Scott. He has a podcast um, called Spaced Out Radio. And I've been on the, the podcast a couple of times. And recently, uh, about three weeks ago, I had a conversation with him. We were talking about the ACE conference and trying to get together to do a little bit of promotion. And he said, Victor, I, I, there's something I should tell you. And this happened to him about a month ago, is my understanding. And uh, there was an incident uh, near his house, around, in, in, his, in, in his community, where uh, the RCMP had to be called. And so the RCMP showed up. I don't know what the incident was. It wasn't a UFO sighting or anything like that. But uh, there was a, could have been a uh, domestic dispute. I, I don't really know. But the fact of the matter was that uh, people crowded around and there was just things going on back and forth. So Dave Scott, being the inquiry-based you know, individual that he is, very you know, hard questioner, he um, spoke very, very um, closely with an RCMP officer who was on the site uh, administering to the situation. So once things settled down, um, Dave had a conversation with the uh, with the RCMP officer. Can I just ask you a question? So the officer, he's just a young fellow. The the officer was, and uh, he said, "Sure, go ahead, shoot." When you guys get a report about a UFO, what do you do? And so it's simple. It's simple. The first thing we do is uh, we call Cheyenne Mountain. We let them know that there's a UFO sighting wherever it happens to be, and then the jets are scrambled. And I, he they said, how long has that been going on? He said, well, as long as I've been an officer for at least eight or ten years, and probably even longer than that, way back in history. So it is common practice for the RCMP, and I go back to your situation, Chris, that you described about those UFOs. It might have been interesting to find out at that particular point if there was a call made to Cheyenne Mountain or even NORAD, because this young fellow was really, he was totally convinced this is RCMP protocol. Well, it is, and that's, you know, there's a chapter in my book there about the space object contingency plan. The chapter's called The Master Plan, mm-hmm. and one of the things that surfaced in my research on Shag Harbor was the release of this in uh, the early, I forget the year now, 2000s. I sent copies to many people across Canada and that, and um, it actually documents the policy, and people were shocked to see in writing that they were to contact and provide escort to any bona fide U.S. official to an impact site and all this. It's all laid out in the uh, space object plan, which I got released from the RCMP from a cover letter. And it's a very interesting story in that chapter, how it goes. I'll tell you, it certainly wasn't through the Access to Information Act that I got it released. I caught them in a little misfire in a response to another request, and... Uh, um, it's very entertaining. I'll probably be telling that story as part of my presentation in Toronto. But I was a busy guy in the 90s and 2000s, I'll tell you. The fact that they have a policy and the fact, oh, that, this, the fact that this young officer is able to recite it without you know, looking for his handbook, he knew automatically, well, this yeah. is what we have to do. Obviously, you know, this is, you know, it's, it's, it's front and center. They, yeah. they know about this stuff. The funniest part about it, I think, though, and they were very embarrassed when they first released it to me, and the the, uh, the RCMP chief archivist called to try to explain it, and he ended up laughing trying to explain it to me, I must admit, was the alternate title. We'd looked for this for years and was called the Space Object Contingency Plan, and that's how they referred to it. But it had a second title, and underneath, right on the cover sheet, it says, a.k.a. the Master Plan. <laughs> <laughs> you, got, you, you know, you can't make this stuff up. The, the the undertow of this kind of information, Chris, uh, you know, as you as you probably know um, through your, all of your investigations, the undertow of this points to the fact that uh, th- this thing is orchestrated. 
uh, if there's policy on this, as Richard just said, uh, the orchestration, the level of orchestration that's going on among governments, uh, not just the Canadian government, but internationally, uh, how, how do you interpret that, that general orchestration of how this thing is kept under the glass ceiling? How, how do you interpret well, all I, of that? Let me just explain how this got revealed, and it, it has something to say about this directly. Mm-hmm. When I caught them up in this, uh, you know, that they had this thing, I was actually looking for an RCMP UFO file. And they called up and say, no, we've just transferred everything to National Archives. You know, they do this every three years, and there's nothing here. In fact, all there is is this old policy document called the Space Object. And I go, that's it. That's what I want. Mm-hmm. And the officer to call me back said, no, it's not. I got your request in front of me. Well, I said, no, that is what I want. I was lying through my teeth. I just said, it's just like I didn't know what it was properly called. Could you please give me the actual file number? And this is how this began. Because every time you asked, they never knew what we were talking about. So they gave me the file number, and when I when it first came, then the chief archivist called me and said, that number didn't make any sense. I said, oh, I'm sure it's correct, because the corporal read it to me, and a few other things. The next thing you know, he called back an hour later and says, I know what you're talking about. Yes, we have it. And I said, yes. He goes, I think we can help you, but this is not going to happen under the Act. And I said, yes. And he went on and he said, look, um, he says, I can't do it under the Act because I won't have time. He says, you can, I can ask for a 15-day extension, but I still can't respond in 45 days. So what's going to happen is I need permission. Here's, here's the part. From every provincial capital in Canada, from Ottawa, from Washington, and from Moscow, because it reveals our working relationship on UFOs but foreign powers. Well, with Moscow? We have this arrangement with Moscow? Well, apparently we had it. And what happened is, uh, so what I said to him was, look, as long as I can see we're making progress and I get updates from you, I said, I see no reason to complain to the Information Commissioner of Canada. And he said, well, I can do (laughs) that. Nicely played. (laughs) And he called me, you know, once a month through to it and said, well, I got the letter from Regina, I got the letter from Washington, I got, you know. And when it first arrived, it was very interesting because it tells you everything from what agency's in charge, you know, how far down, when you're supposed to to stand. It had scripts in it for cover stories and everything. Scripts for cover stories? Unredacted, they even paid for the photocopying. Better service than National Archives. What? What? I mean, this is a major disclosure document. This, I'm sorry, but this makes that New York Times story look, look pale in comparison. Well, it's 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 all documented. Am I wrong? In, in the book, and uh, is it, the chapter is called the Master Plan. This is in the, uh, the you know the newer book, the uh, Impact the Contact. Can, can we get this online, uh, Chris? Um, could, could, I'd be glad to, to, to send you a copy here. That would be fantastic because... Yeah, there's there's like about 50 pages, and I'm not sure the cover... It might take me a day or two to get it to you. That's fine. Up. No one's been interested for a while. Mm. Well, th- that whole thing, it, it, as Richard is saying, it's, it's another piece of this puzzle, the, the, another mm-hmm. converging line of evidence. Yeah, and I have the, the cover letter with it when they released it and everything. It's, uh, yeah. it's a major piece of the puzzle is. because, I, I mean... You, when we look at what the New York Times story was all about, mm-hmm. you know, twenty-two million dollars. We're we're studying advanced. You know, we're assessing the threat and so forth. Here's a here's a major uh, 
policy piece document. of policy on how to handle them. Here's a cover story if you well, need a script. Well, it's about unknown objects. They never use the term UFO, and if it's very clear what they're talking about. Well, you know, I, I, yeah, in my interactions with NORAD, and I've had a lot, okay, a lot, specifically with the with the NORAD commander in, in Colorado, and they use terms like non-correlated targets. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, TOIs, tracks of interest. Exactly. Uh, unknowns. Yeah. So they always skirt around the issue. And um, the, 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 the idea behind uh, what you don't say as opposed to what you do say, what you don't say is just as powerful as what you do. In some ways, it's more powerful. You need to print that, that document, and you need to hand that to someone in, in the, at, at the Toronto Star or the Globe and Mail, because as far as I'm concerned, Chris, uh, I mean, this is the first time you know I'm, I'm hearing about it. This this is big. This is monumental. If you can, or am, get... I, am I am I exaggerating? No, I don't think you are. Well, back in the day, I, I sent it to the old Canufo website, and uh, there were about ten people contacted me. And of course, I I get them copies. In those days, I was mostly mailing hard copies, and you know, um, it wasn't anything I held to my chest. But there wasn't a great deal of interest at the time, to be honest. Well, maybe now the time is right. Well, maybe it is. Anyway. I'll get them to you with some attachments there somehow or send one up to you for sure. You yeah, know? for sure. It, it, that's of course, something. we'll be seeing you in Toronto there in June, too. Well, the, the thing is, there's a bit of a time constraint here because the, the, Canadian, the Canadian Research Council on UFOs that I've just established, we have um, a page on the MUFON uh, site that, that, that Stu and, and, uh, and Ryan Stacey put together. And we have a number of documents up there. They're going to be growing, let's put it that way. And the documents that we do have up there are from the 9,500 files. Mm -hmm. However, if you can get me this particular policy document and we can go through, I can go through it and find out what the salient pages are. I have a major network here in Canada. I'm not Mm going to use the call letters on on, on the air here, but that may be interesting and has already covered the Pentagon issue Mm -hmm. in, in an interview. Well, this would have been the rules of the RCMP, like when they went to a case and they would call the provincial division, they would have called Ottawa and referred to this, this was the rules, you mm-hmm. see? That's a big picture. It's a big yeah. picture policy document. And, and, and this applied to UFOs, of course, it also applied, applied to anything such as uh, Cosmos 954. Sure, yeah. That fell in the high Arctic there. Yeah. Right, uh, right. You know, the Soviet uh, nuclear satellite that made such a mass... Skylab, etc. This is what they were referred to, but any unknown object from space that landed, these were the rules for the RCMP. But but those stories don't need cover story scripts, do they? Well, there's actually scripts in it at the end of how to deal with the media and that. There's suggestions. Okay, dealing with the media is one thing, but a cover story script? Here's one you can use, you know, no, that that's that we they don't need that for a, if a satellite falls out of the sky or an atomic furnace. Or, <laughs> indeed, <laughs> this is uh, this is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, we we're, we're about to head into a break. When we come back, are you good to talk a little bit about Falcon Lake? I mean, I know it's not it's not. Uh, well, I, I can tell you what I learned about it when I was Ottawa in '94, and I interviewed Squadron Leader William Bain face to face. He was with the air desk at the time, one of the two majors that ran it. All right, we'll, we'll do that when we come back. Yeah, the topic came up, of course. All right, Chris Stiles stays with us. Victor Vigiani on to Falcon Lake, sometimes described as Canada's best documented UFO case, although Chris Stiles would beg to differ. But we'll get into that when we come back. Also, John Podesta on a recent episode of Ancient Aliens. We'll discuss that as well. Stay with us. Where there's smoke... There's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio.
You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Chris Stiles is with us, co-author of Dark Object about the Shag Harbor UFO incident, co-author of From Impact to Contact, and uh, we're about to discuss the Falcon Lake UFO incident. Victor Vigiani also here from Zealand News Network, and just a reminder again, the Alien Cosmic Expo conference coming up June 22nd, 23rd, 24th at the Toronto Airport Marriott Hotel. And uh, for more information and uh, tickets, you can go to aliencosmicexpo.com or my live events page at strangeplanet.ca. I'll be moderating a roundtable discussion on disclosure on Sunday. That's the 24th of June. All right. The... um, the Falcon Lake, uh, we, we, I mentioned earlier that the Royal Mint, uh, Canadian Royal Mint, uh, has, they've now sold out of their commemorative coin uh, on the uh, the Falcon Lake UFO incident. And uh, we're waiting for the uh, the Shag Harbor commemorative coin. That must, uh, I'm sure that's in the works. Uh, but take us back to, to Falcon Lake because it's also 1967. Um, but this is, um, this is in, in Manitoba. And uh, this is a very unique incident in that we actually have what appears to be a physical injury related to this UFO incident. Now, uh, is it Stefan Michalik? Is that how you pronounce his name, or Michalak? Well, I've heard so many pronunciations. Uh, Most people seem to think now that it's Stefan Michalik. Michalik, okay. But I've I've heard so many variants, you know. So he goes into the woods near Falcon Lake, Manitoba, and he he sees this object, and and he has these burns, uh, like like a... like a waffle iron type pattern on his chest. Yeah, supposedly uh, there was a hot discharge from a vent on the side of the UFO, you know, that had landed or was just above the the ground, right? I've never investigated this case. It's a very well-known one. It's it, it's been looked at. But the topic of that did come up when we were talking about how things ran at the air desk. I was lucky enough back in 1994 to interview uh, Squadron Leader William Bain. He was retired then, who was one of the two majors through the 60s at the Air Desk in Ottawa. And uh, when that case came up, I was rather surprised, actually, you know, because I I wanted to know what his impressions were. And he thought that uh, the case was of merit and was genuine and that, you know, they were being told the truth. And I was slightly surprised by that, not that I'm questioning the... uh, the merit of his testimony of, of, of Stefan Mihalik, but uh, the thing is, I know that the Americans, uh, the Condon Committee went up and did an on-site investigation with the case, right? And they thought they were being given the runaround in the woods, and uh, you know, mind you, one of the investigators thought perhaps it was because he didn't want to show claims, he was a prospector, and but generally they did not feel good about the story and the evidence. Um, one of the other interesting things is apparently the Mounties tried to get him to recant. They actually took him out and got him drunk a few times. 
Oh, is that right? Yeah, and befriended him and things. There was all kinds of shenanigans going on. Uh, but the thing is, is that, you know, Bain said he thought it was quite genuine. Um, although one of the other Mounties thought that the radioactive samples from the pure radium and the smears they found in the rock had been material that they thought was stolen from a nearby local hospital. So, you know, it was somewhat controversial, but... Uh, um, it's interesting to note, too, I, I was very surprised at this, that Bain, you know, who felt very strongly about Shag Harper and felt it was a genuine incident, he felt the same was true about Falcon Lake. Um, and he even told me about personal sightings he had, which uh, when he was a, a pilot flying S-2 subtractors off the coast of Nova Scotia, you know. So I suppose he was in the Believer camp, so it might have been easier for him, but... The problem I had with Falcon Lake, why I always found Shea Harbor more interesting, is essentially Falcon Lake is a single witness case, largely. Right. right. And, it, you know, it, it stands that weakness where we have double-digit witnesses and, you know, lots of involvement in the Shag Harbor case. But it's certainly a case of merit. It's one of the great Canadian cases. It's the largest UFO file in terms of what's socked away there in Records Group 77 in Ottawa. Interesting. You know what I mean? Yes. Definitely one of the biggies. And here we have two. We have two he, he sees two craft. Yes. One is flying at very high speed. The other lands about 100 feet from him. He goes up and he yeah. touches it, burns his hand. Yeah. And then, as you say... Uh, Attempts to communicate with the occupants. Right. Yeah. It's interesting uh, testimony from his son, who is, uh, I think, nine years old at the time. Mm-hmm. And he just remembers his father being in bed, very sick, looking very pale. And he remembers... Uh, he said something that reminded me of what you mentioned about the, the smell of the foam in Shag Harbor. You said mm-hmm. it smelled like sulfur. And that's exactly what Stan said about his, when he went into the room. That's the first thing that struck him was the god-awful smell. He said it smelled like sulfur and a burnt-out engine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you can clearly see that there are many photographs that exist of his injury. And eventually, I think he went down to a, was what the Mayo Clinic for Treatment in the U.S., and uh, it is what it is. What I can tell you is, like I say, there was a difference between U.S. authorities and ours, but I know in Ottawa, the you know, when I spoke with Bain and some other staffers there, they were, they thought it was a merit and genuine, and they, they generally believed the prospector's story. Why would the RCMP bother to take him out, try to get him to recant his story, get him drunk? Why don't they just, they could have just let it go away? You know, why were they so... <laughs> Well, intent because I, on getting I, I guess the world wanted more of it. You know, we, you know, once the word gets out and people kept coming up and doing follow-up investigations, and I, I guess they thought if they could get rid of it quick and easy and just do away with it, perhaps it would stop, uh, you know, U.S. authorities from coming up and others and the media attention, you know. I mean, when in doubt, you know, you try to cool these things down. I mean, look, after Shag Harbor, I found many clippings in there that were in Ottawa in the air desk files. One was of a, a quote from a Nova Scotia newspaper called The Province that used to exist. And in it, there's a little story where they're interviewing one of the NRC guys that took over from the air desk. Yes. And he sat there saying, uh, they're asking about Shag Harbor. And at the bottom, they write in the column beside it with an arrow point and say, these statements do not help the situation in Nova Scotia. <laughs> they do not and, help and the And what situation. the headline on the story was, was he could believe in UFOs. Hmm. That's fascinating. So, you know, being a PhD and an NRC guy, you can't ignore it. 
great on a slow, slow news day. We're going to head into a break here shortly, but what was it about 1967? What was, I mean, south of the border, you had uh, the, the UFO incidents at Malmstrom and these nuke, nuke bases. What was going on, Victor? What do you think? Well, the, the, uh, the one in 65 um, in Pennsylvania, the, the Kecksburg incident, right, a right. very, very puzzling incident. Um, it just seemed that that particular period of time, uh, they, they, either the awareness was up and people's eyes were to the skies more, or there were, in fact, more um, intrusive incursions in our airspace uh, by these craft of unknown, uh, of unknown uh, origin. It's really hard to say, and I think when it comes right down to it eventually, when we do find out what's going on, you're going to see these hills and valleys and you know high peaks and low peaks of these sightings, and there's probably reasons for that, very, very specific reasons, and which have to do with governmental involvement and communication with these extraterrestrials. When we come back, John Podesta... Hillary's failed campaign manager was recently on an episode of Ancient Aliens. We'll find out what that was all about when The Conspiracy Show returns. Stay with us. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. Hey, welcome back. Chris Stiles is with us, and he will be speaking uh, also Sunday, June 24th at uh, 10.30 a.m. at the Alien Cosmic Expo. He'll be talking all about uh, Shag Harbor and uh, Shelburne, Nova Scotia, the, uh, the UFO incident uh, back in 1967, October of 1967. Again, the Alien Cosmic Expo, June 22, 23, 24. Uh, all of the, uh, the luminaries in the, uh, the field of ufology. Stanton Friedman will be making his penultimate appearance there after that. He's on to Roswell in July and then no more live appearances from Stanton Friedman. Uh, of course, Richard Dolan, uh, Linda Moulton Howe, Grant Cameron... Uh, I mentioned Richard Dolan, Victor Vigiani, of course, here in studio from Zeland News Network. Uh, Kathleen Martin will be there, the uh, the niece of uh, Betty and Barney Hill, of course, the uh, the preeminent uh, alien abduction uh, case. So again, that's at the Toronto Marriott Hotel, Toronto Airport Marriott Hotel, aliencosmicexpo.com for uh, for more information. I'll be there on the twenty fourth as well, conducting or not conducting, moderating the uh, the roundtable on. UFO disclosure. Uh, I wanted to talk about uh, John Podesta, who is um, who, who appeared recently on an episode of Ancient Aliens. Now, this is kind of um, an interesting uh, episode. They they're speculating that had Clinton or Clinton would have led a UFO disclosure movement had she won the presidency. And and uh, there's some implication that the CIA and the Pentagon were worried about Hillary, and therefore they arranged for her to lose the election in order to prevent UFO disclosure. Interesting premise for a, for a program. However, I haven't seen it. Uh, Victor, you have? And your, mm-hmm. and your thoughts? Well, uh, I've been watching that program now for... Jeez, oh, it's this is the 13th episode, I think, in terms of the 13th year. 13th season, yeah. Season, rather. Yeah, and uh, their their main um, thrust is the ancient alien 
theory that these extraterrestrials have been here for thousands and thousands of years and that we may have originated from them and all kinds of information about Egypt and Samaria and right. everything. So they, they, they went back in history and did a lot of research, which is, and they do it in a quality way. It's a little bit of a stretch sometimes, but they, they stay within that bailiwick in the confines of that, of that theory. However, this, uh, uh, this, this season, the first episode, is called The UFO Conspiracy, and it's a two-hour uh, episode, which is unusual. All of them are just one hour. And they go into literally everything that's regarding uh, this whole disclosure issue. They start off with, um, well, geez, the Clintons, for example. They talk about exactly what you just talked about, about Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton's, their interest. They go into the, the findings of Grant Cameron with respect to the Rockefeller Initiative and the, the initiative that Lawrence S. Rockefeller took with the Clinton family, in particular President uh, Clinton at the time, to come clean on, on UFOs and the extraterrestrial presence. They also talk about um, what Clinton wanted to find out through Webster Hubble. And when uh, Clinton came out um, uh, as, as president, he wanted to find out two things. And he brought Webster Hubble in to the Justice Department and said, I want you to find out two things. Number one, who killed JFK? And number two, are there such things as UFOs and aliens? Uh, they, they, they talk about that. What else? They talked about uh, Eisenhower's involvement. Uh, they also talked about um, John Podesta, as you, as you referenced. John Podesta is salt and peppered all the way through the two hours with some very, very incisive information about what levels of security and secrecy each president has as they come through the, uh, the, uh, the, the Oval Office. Talking about uh, some have a real tight fist on, 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 uh, on secrecy and others kind of more open. And his insights are really interesting because he's he spent so much time uh, as the, the chief of staff with with Clinton he got to see exactly not only uh, what Clinton believed and he called him one of the most curious people or uh, most curiosity centered persons that he's ever known in his life this is you know from the mouth of John Podesta so it's quite interesting that the ancient aliens would have taken on this tact and not only did they do that they went to the 2013 citizen hearings on disclosure that were held um, in May and in April 2013 that was organized by Stephen Bassett with the uh, five, five congressmen and one senator and they brought forward about 30 people 30 witnesses with over 40 hours of testimony and they had clips of that. Paul Hellyer was on, Richard Dolan was on, and it, would, it really surprised me the level of accuracy, number one, and the um, production value of this, of this particular episode. And it really kind of struck me that not only is ancient aliens going back and looking at what these things might have been in the past, but they're also looking forward to what this whole disclosure issue might be. Right. And that's where I think they're going with this. And so it was an extremely incisive, very well done, uh, very professionally oriented uh, kind of program that I think is ever on again. I think they do a bit of a loop on this. They'll probably play it back again in two or three weeks. Uh, so I would really encourage people to kind of look at it. Uh, if you're on Bell, it's on uh, uh, 15 uh, History Channel. I think right, so. right. What's so, curious to me is why presidents and other high-profile political figures mm -hmm are always so curious after they're in office. If Hillary Clinton was so big on this issue, why wasn't she when she had the podium as Secretary of State talking about this? And wh why does Bill Clinton wait until he's out of office for 12 years before going on Jimmy Kimmel and yucking it up about uh, yeah. Area 51? Yeah. If they're being genuine and they are curious about it, 
Why aren't the curious while they're in office? I find that very odd. Yeah, no, I know. I, there's something that I've wondered about all, all along. And if you go back with many, many of the presidents, uh, Jimmy Carter, for example, he was dead set against secrecy. And he asked, uh, the, at the time, the CIA director, George W. Bush Sr., mm-hmm. he said, um, as, a, as president-elect, I want the UFO files. I want access to them. And Bush said to him at the time, uh, Mr. President, uh, you don't have a need to know. And he went on from there and, and, uh, and uh, eventually struck a deal with, uh, I guess, someone just to keep quiet while he was in office. I know lots of stuff was going on. See, if, if that happened anything. to me, if I was president, if I were Jimmy Carter, I'd just, in Hammer. the interest of transparency, I'd just come out and say, well, you know what, at a press conference, I'd just blurt it out. I'd say, you know what, I'm very interested in UFOs. You might call me crazy, but I, I saw one yep. once, and I, I asked the CIA director, and he told me I don't have a need to know. I'd just blow it right out of the water, just like that. Well, I think in you saying that, that brings up the point, what kind of pressure would they have been under from other parts within the intelligence community to say, Mr. President, if you start talking about this kind of stuff, your credibility is going to go down the, down the drain very, very quickly. So there may be political pressure as to why they, they don't say anything. Uh, Reagan attempted to. He went before the UN and talked about if an unknown threat came, we would all be much more united. Uh, he, he skirted the issue. But well, he was, he was using it metaphorically. He was, yes. But we know for a fact that he was extremely involved in the UFO. Um, uh, well, the other option is to do like Ike in his farewell address. Mm-hmm. You spill the beans on your way out while you still have the microphone. Yeah. I think it points to the power of the deep state government. And when you take a look at the, the power that the presidents have regarding everything from national security to policy making, et cetera, et cetera, that they don't really run the government. They really don't. And if they do go out on the limb, I think the intelligence communities have ways of dealing with people. And I think that's one of the reasons why, and people will know I, they'll disagree with me on this and many others who, who feel the same way as I do, that's one of the reasons why JFK was, was put away. That's one of the theories, and I happen to subscribe to that because of all of the information within the Kennedy camp at the time and his communication with the National Security uh, Advisors and Moscow about all this stuff. And also, uh, we have uh, clear evidence, very clear evidence from, um, uh, from Daniel Sheehan, the, the, the Watergate lawyer involved in, talking with uh, the former president of the, of the Soviet Union, uh, Union um, Gorbachev about the existence. And he was told directly by Gorbachev, these things exist. So it's, sitting people don't really have the luxury of standing on the podium and saying what, what you're saying. I think that they, they feel the threats of, of, the, of the deep state. And that's one of the reasons why I think they just keep quiet. Chris, you're a, a real boots on the ground, kind of, you know, knock on doors, roll up your sleeves, do the, the research. Where are you in this whole UFO disclosure uh, is it something that you, you you think about, or are you just are you just just the facts, ma'am? Just the facts. Um, well, the problem I have with it, I, I mean, in one sense, I have no problem with it. But if the government was suddenly to tell me and fess up, hey, look, here's the deal, what we know about the aliens, and here's any deal we might have with them, I'd be just as suspicious of the of the admission as I would of their denials. You know, right? I, I'd kind of like to have it come from somewhere else. But you know, I was listening to just what the two of you were saying there, and maybe it's like that awful movie Independence Day, like <laughs> where they tell the president when he asks, "How come I didn't know about this?" He goes, "Sir, you don't have the security clearance." That's right. Right. It's like that old Johnny that, that Carson might be show. More true than yeah. we know. Yeah, it's like the old Johnny Carson show. Who do you trust? You know. Mm. 
Nobody. <laughs> well, so then where does that leave us? What's, uh, let's just, in, yeah, in the couple minutes that remain, um, talk about, again, what happened in, de- in December with uh, Luis Elizondo, you know, revealing that he'd been in charge of the secret Pentagon program, um, ATIP, Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program. We know Robert Bigelow was involved uh, and, and his private space uh, exploration company. Uh, they, were, they, they brought Bigelow on, on stream because he had a facility where you could study stuff under you know, top-secret conditions. What does Bigelow have, do you think, Victor? From my understanding, he has a building with materials in it. That's that's the, what that's what he was saying with like, materials, with materials like actual physical materials that can be inspected and analyzed. That's that's what I understand he has. So it's been five months since the New York Times article. Where is Bigelow in all this? Why isn't he telling us more? It's it's I think it goes back to what Chris was talking about. You know, it, as soon as information comes out from either an independent agency or uh, a government agency, it's it's a matter of who do you trust and how fast will that information be discredited. And I think uh, Bigelow went out on the limb at 60 Minutes when he talked about, uh, he, was, he was interviewed and said, uh, the, the lady uh, interviewer said, you know, if you come forward with this, people are going to think you're crazy. And he said, I don't care. I just don't care. So do they give him more airtime to come and talk more about this uh, or do, and to have it come out in an independent way? Or is there some sort of conduit through, the, uh, through which the Pentagon is working? to have this information come out on almost a, a two-prong approach, an independent and a governmental. So we have to kind of balance those two and see how this whole disclosure um, issue, uh, the stew, percolates. And it's getting much more tasty, uh, let me tell you. And I think we've only just scratched the surface as to how this disclosure issue is going to unfold in the next six to eight months. To be continued June 22nd, 23rd, 24th at the Alien Cosmic Expo. Victor Vigiani, Zeland News Network. Very quickly, how do people read your dispatches? Zeland Communications News Blog. Zeland Communications News Blog. We, we have Linda Moulton Howell booked. Linda Moulton Howell is booked before Ace. To All right, continue. Linda Moulton Howell will be on the program towards the end of May. All right, Chris Stiles, thank you. We'll see you thank there you. as well. It was a pleasure. Dark objects and from impact to contact. Thanks uh, to Ian Robertson, Albert Vinzel, and Ryan White back next week with a brand new program. We'll take a, a humorous look at political correctness. And uh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley as well will be here. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper. Claim, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. Happy birthday to you. Hey, where's mom going? She hasn't even opened her presents. Well, son, she just turned 65, which means there's new offers for her at Specsavers. What? Yep, an eye exam now costs her nothing, and she can get 30% off lens upgrades with any pair of glasses. Wow. So, can we cut the cake now? You betcha. No-cost eye exams are for eligible seniors at all participating locations with costs covered by provincial health care. Conditions apply. See specsavers.ca. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.